Jason Crawford, welcome to Flies in the Ointment podcast. Uh, Jason, you gave a talk uh, last year about nuclear energy, which is a topic that I am very passionate about. And um, let's, let me just uh, say a few uh, words about uh, Jason Crawford. Jason Crawford actually started as a computer scientist, correct? Uh, yeah, my background's in computer science, and I was a software engineer, uh, engineering manager, and a tech startup founder. Yeah. And dare I say, somehow you became uh, enamored with the, the science of progress? Yeah, definitely, and the history of it. So I got uh, very interested in the history of uh, technology and of technological progress and more broadly of human progress. Uh, in early 2017, I started a blog called The Roots of Progress. And then in uh, late 2019, I uh, became my full-time uh, uh, job. I became an independent researcher and that's where I am today. So why the history of technology? Well, uh, Technology is behind one of the greatest things ever to happen to the human race, which is the enormous explosion in material living standards over the last couple of hundred years. Uh, I think that uh, Deirdre McCluskey calls it the great enrichment, right? And I think it deserves that term. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think if you care about human life and well-being and our capabilities on this planet, then um, you just have to look at what happened over the last couple hundred years, which is absolutely unprecedented in history, right? For, for almost all of human history, you had sort of per capita wealth, you know, barely increasing or not, not really increasing at all. Um, and then, you know, the last couple hundred years, it's gone up 20 or 30 times in developed countries, you know, maybe even more by some measures. So, you know, if you care about human well-being, I think you have to look at that and be somewhat in awe and say, wow, first off, how did it happen? Like literally just what were the key discoveries and inventions, right? What, what were the steps? Um, second, why did it take so long, right? Why were there so many thousands of years, maybe tens of thousands of years of human history before that really got going? And then, uh, you know, for, for the future, uh, how can we keep this going? It seems like a really good thing. Uh, how can we keep it going and, and maybe even speed it up? So those were the questions that I was motivated by that, you know, began me on this study. What is the biggest hindrance in the uh, in the technological progress as you have been able to zoom it into a particular thing? Yeah, wow. Well, let's see. Um, so it might be different if you ask over sort of the course of human history versus today, um, although there's definitely some overlap. I mean, over the, the course of human history, I think there's a number of things. Um, I think about the, uh, the pace of progress is determined by um, really, there's a number of overlapping feedback loops. So um, progress compounds. It feeds on itself. Progress begets progress. It allows us to make more progress. And this is true at multiple levels. So um, technology itself, when it's fundamental enough, can help us create more technology. For instance, um, precision machining, precision manufacturing, uh, which really developed around the 1800s, uh, is a fundamental enabling technology that enables you know, many other types of machines. Um, just generally at an economic level, the more wealth that we create, the more surplus we can accumulate and the more we can then uh, put back into R&D, which then allows us to continue making more progress, right? Um, science and technology uh, overlap this way or, or, or feedback, have a, a feedback cycle, right? So um, uh, science enables advanced technology and then technology can create um, instruments or you know, other things that enable us to make more progress in science. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's also true at the level of um, philosophy and sort of cultural attitudes. The more people believe in progress, believe that it's both possible and desirable, 
the more that they are inclined to go out and try to make progress, and then the more of it actually happens. And I think that was a, 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 actually a pretty big driver. Um, so Joel Mokir, the economic historian, uh, especially in his book, A Culture of Growth, argues this, that for in most times and places, people didn't even have the idea of progress itself, the idea that it was possible um, and desirable. This uh, thesis might have been first articulated in a, a pretty well-known work by, uh, from uh, the 1920 by Barry called The Idea of Progress. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and both of them, Barry and Makir, argue that essentially the, the very notion of progress sort of uh, emerged in, uh, in the West, in Europe, around the time of uh, you know, Francis Bacon and his contemporaries. Um, you know, the idea that not only could we move science forward and, and gain new knowledge um, through the experimental method, but also uh, that this would be useful, that it would lead to useful improvements that would uh, improve uh, arts and manufactures. That was something that, you know, for instance, the ancient Greeks uh, and Romans, they might have thought about um, uh, advancing our knowledge and advancing science, but they had no idea how much that could then uh, come back and actually be useful for economics and for, for wealth and, uh, and, and living standards. Um, so it's really just the last few hundred years, maybe 500 years or so, uh, that we've even had, uh, you know, that, that basic idea that that was possible. Yeah. You know, one of the underappreciated aspects of technology is that this conversation is only made possible because we have a surplus of time that we're not devoting to trying to figure out how much food we can actually get and you know build a shelter and all of these basic needs they've been so well satisfied because of the technological progress that we have a surplus a leisure that allowed our brain to have time to think about philosophical issues yeah this being one of them uh, just as an example so i mean before uh the industrial revolution was applied to agriculture before it was mechanized and we had fertilizer you know uh and so forth about half of the population had to be farmers just to keep the other half mm -hmm. alive. A farm family could feed roughly themselves and one other family. Uh, and so just half your workforce right there is, is an agriculture that doesn't leave a whole lot left over. And of course, most of the rest were making basic necessities, right? Clothing and, um, you know, some blacksmithing and, uh, you know, pottery and glass blowing and, and so forth. It just wasn't a whole lot uh, left for um, university professors mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, writers and researchers and scientists mm -hmm. and inventors and so forth. So there is a trade-off uh, that, uh, that comes with technology. Um, and the trade-off being with technological progress, we have this surplus, we can allocate more of our time to having philosophical conversations, thinking about the science scientific process itself, thinking about how much we can allocate to R&D so we can actually leap to the next uh, technological um, stage. And But there is no technology that comes without costs, right? Uh, uh, technology displaces. Uh, Joseph Schumpeter called that the uh, creative destruction. And But generally we say, okay, as long as the net is positive, then we take on that, uh, that cost. But there are also other risks that come with technologies. Uh, those risks can be sufficiently so to make the, the net benefit negative, or they could keep it positive and we take on those risks. So let's talk about energy, for example, uh, the topic of nuclear energy in particular. Uh, every technology, and you talk about like the bicycle, 
and this what seems to be a very simple tool that we all enjoy actually the technology behind it wasn't intuitive at all there are complexities that we fail to appreciate and sometimes um, with the, the bicycle, most people are not worried about the bicycle being a risk. But with nuclear energy, for example, there are, uh, we associate nuclear with a nuclear bomb, but the nuclear energy is still far safer than, and we can talk about that, than um, even uh, generating energy via fossil fuels. But there is a mystery to nuclear energy, and when people don't understand the mystery, they tend to overemphasize the risk over the benefits. Can we talk a little bit about nuclear energy? Yeah, sure. Um, I do think it is, to, to understand the history of nuclear energy, I do think it is significant and, um, you know, and, and, and deeply unfortunate in many ways that nuclear technology made its introduction to the world as a horrible weapon yes. uh, uh, that uh, a very dramatic and uh, a deadly and destructive weapon. And so from the very beginning, um, nuclear technology, I think, was associated in the public mind with with death and mm -hmm. horror um, in a way that was you know hard to completely undo. Um, uh, and I do think that's unfortunate, and and it seems like one of those quirks of history, right? You just you know wonder how things might have gone differently if um, you know if, if if World War II had never happened, or if uh, nuclear technology had been de developed before or after it. Um, but this is the timeline we're living in. So um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I do think that's very important. Um, you know, radiation itself is also. Um, it's a mysterious force, right? It's invisible. Mm -hmm. um, when when uh, radiation was first uh, discovered in the form of you know X-rays in the uh, you know very late 1800s, um, uh, you know it, people at first didn't think that it could possibly be harmful. I mean, nobody had a clue that it could be harmful. And uh, the very early X-ray machines, um, you know, uh, often were treated as novelties. Somebody would set up an X-ray machine at a carnival or a birthday party or something, right? And people would just X-ray their hands for fun, right? See your bones. It was like a cool, you know, kind of thing that you could do. The X-ray operators themselves actually had it worst of all because they would uh, regularly use their hand as a test to make sure the machine was working. Nobody had any shielding or any notion of dosage, you know. Um, now, within the first, I don't remember exactly how long, year or two of, of, of this stuff going on, people started to realize that there were harmful effects. Uh, but at first... Um, you know, people go, well, look, you can't see it, uh, smell it, feel it. You can't even feel it going through you. It doesn't even warm you up or there's, there's no tingling or anything. How could anything that you can barely detect possibly harm you? But then they found out it could. You know, they used to, you'd get hair falling out if when x-rays had been done to the side of the head or you'd get skin burns and, you know, things like that and eventually cancers. And um, so, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was shocking to people who, um, uh, you know, who had been experimenting with it. And of course, we evolve safety standards for x-rays and, and so forth. Um, but I think it just points to radiation being this kind of mysterious force where um, you can't see it or detect it in any way without a special instrument. And yet it causes some strange, uh, you know, a potential harm inside the body that might not even show up right away and might show up hours, days, or years later, right, in the case of a cancer. Mm -hmm. And so given those... So where do you draw the line? How much risk can we take with nuclear energy? Well, by now, 
I think we understand or ought to understand the health effects of radiation enough to um, to be able to avoid them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, certainly in 1895, we did not. Um, but now more than 100 years later, right, we have a lot of science. Um, we have, uh, we understand the much better the mechanisms um, of how radiation affects DNA. We hadn't even discovered DNA in 1895, right? Um, so uh you know so so it, we just have a whole lot more information now to know you know sort of where is a reasonable um threshold um i mean and and the problem as uh as, as i gather that you've maybe covered in you know pre previous episodes um is that we've adopted this um, model of radiation damage the linear no threshold model or uh, you know lnt that um you know, that basically doesn't recognize any safe level of radiation. And now I'm not an expert in this, but to my understanding, um, the LNT model of radiation damage uh, doesn't really comport either with theory or with evidence of, um, of, of radiation damage, right? So in theory, um, I, I, again, I'm just summarizing my, my basic understanding here, but um, in, in theory, uh, what happens is that, you know, radiation is um, breaking DNA strands, and so it's actually causing damage to DNA, but the cell has certain repair mechanisms for DNA, and uh, if, if the uh, rate of breakage is below some uh, you know, some threshold, then the, the repair mechanisms can do a pretty good job. Uh, and in fact, indeed, this is happening all the time at a, you know, at a very, uh, at a very low level. Um, and it's only once the rate of breakage uh, exceeds some, some threshold that the repair mechanisms can't keep up. And that's where you get uh, DNA damage, and that can ultimately lead to cancers and, and so forth. Um, uh, and then, I mean, the evidence, there's a whole lot of, uh, you know, there's many different studies. There's been studies on the Hiroshima survivors, um, studies on the, uh, the women who used to paint radioactive clock dials and other, you know, things with the glow-in-the-dark uh, paint. Um, there's been a number of, um, there was one episode where a, an apartment building was accidentally built with... Um, uh, steel rebar that I think had some uh, radioactive cobalt in it. And so the people in the apartment building were exposed to some level of radiation for a while before anybody, you know, figured out uh, what was going on. Um, and then, of course, uh, you can also look at the natural background level of radiation. Uh, many people, I suppose, don't know this, but um, the level of radiation that we're all exposed to every single day, no matter what, is not zero. Uh, there actually is some natural background radiation. I don't remember all the sources. I mean, I think some of it comes from cosmic rays, literally coming in from, from space. Uh, some of it is from uh, rocks and minerals around us. Um, and in some parts of the world, this is significantly higher than in other places. So there are certain countries um, and certain specific cities and beaches, you know, areas and so forth where some beaches where the sand has, um, you know, some level, some higher level of kind of naturally radioactive substances and so forth. So these populations have all been studied. Um, and uh, my understanding, I, so, I mean, I think these studies are controversial and different people interpret them in different ways. Um, but what I've read seems to indicate that they, uh, they, they the, the linear model doesn't hold up, that it is not strictly linear and that at, um, at, at lower levels of radiation, the, um, the harm is actually reduced by orders of magnitude below what the linear uh, model would predict.
And not only that, it's actually even uh, the harm is even below control groups, as some of the clinical studies have uh, found, not only just the clinical studies and the epi studies as well. And that's basically that new model that was not really new, but when you look at the history of science, this model is ancient, but the hormetic model, uh, the idea that uh, a low level of stress may give you more resilience to combat higher level of stress of the same substance and, in fact, more substances. Uh, so you could be exposed to a small level of uh, radiation and you develop resilience to higher doses of radiation, but perhaps other substances that may induce harm. And so this idea in toxicology that the dose makes the poison is so ancient it captures the neutrality aspect. In other words, your body takes care of harm when the exposure is very at small levels. Beyond that, yes, the harm may become significant, but your body takes care of, and that's like your, the idea of the cells have an adaptive response and they repair. Um, but it doesn't capture the idea of hormesis, which is very counterintuitive and Generally, people don't like to think about there it might be a hormetic effect to something as scary as radiation, that you might even do better being exposed than even a control group that's never been exposed. So yeah. in, in terms of this um, concept of better be safe than sorry, how much is that costing us when it comes to nuclear energy? Well, I don't know how to quantify it, but um, I do think that uh, it, it does seem that the, uh, so uh, actually, let me give a little bit more context. So partially on the basis of this um, linear no threshold model, um, the uh, nuclear regulation in the United States has formally adopted a policy uh, uh, towards radiation known as ALARA, A-L-A-R-A, stands for as low as reasonably achievable. Um, and the idea here is that rather than set some threshold of radiation, um, and say that that threshold is is okay, is healthy, and then you know we just need to get below that or you know below some margin of safety. Um, uh, literally, uh, the the goal of regulation is to continue to drive radiation levels down um, as far as can quote unquote reasonably be achieved, uh, regardless of whether there is you know any any level that we should simply consider safe. Um, and this means in some cases. Uh, trying to drive the radiation levels, you know, well down below this this natural background level that we're already exposed to. Mm -hmm. um, uh, part of the other, I should mention um, maybe. So, so part of the uh, another part of the LNT uh, model is that um, time doesn't matter. So the notion is that damage accumulates, um, and it just accumulates linearly over time. So. Say you're uh, say you're gonna receive a dose of radiation, right? Would you rather receive that uh, a certain dose of radiation like all at once in a single one second burst, or would you rather you know get one percent of it uh, every day for a hundred days? Well, according to LNT, it doesn't matter. According right? to LNT, it doesn't matter, yeah. right? Um, and this also again doesn't seem to comport with the the evidence and the theory, right? So so again, there's some sort of um, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a, a mechanism of repair, and uh, if you get hit with a, a whole big burst of radiation, then uh, you know you, you can't your body can't necessarily repair all that. But if it's a, a very low level spread out over, over a long period of time, you, you should be able to repair. Um, and so this is another sort of challenge with the with the LNT model. Um, okay, so sorry, back to Alara. So um, 
uh, right, driving down the, the levels of radiation even well below kind of the, the, the background or below any threshold that can really be demonstrated to be harmful. Um, and because of this, uh, at least some critics of, uh, of the NRC and of Alara say that this has uh, forced nuclear to be non-cost competitive. Right? So stepping back a little bit, um, in the 1950s, 1960s, around then, uh, lots of people thought that nuclear energy was absolutely the future, right? Um, it's, it was um, extremely cheap. It had no air pollution. Um, it, it seemed quite abundant. It can provide baseload power. There had all these great um, features. The uh, fuel, uh, the energy density of the fuel is absolutely off the charts compared to any chemical fuel whatsoever. It's, I mean, roughly, you know, 100,000 to a million times more energy dense. Um, you know, what this means is that a, um, a nuclear plant, uh, power plant, for instance, receives a shipment of nuclear fuel on a basis of something like once a year or even less, right? Um, fuel, uh, you know, as opposed to a, a, a fossil fuel plant, right, which is which is receiving them daily or weekly. Um, so, uh, you know, fuel becomes, uh, you know, more like annual maintenance rather than a regular operation. Uh, and this, of course, means you need to do a lot less mining. Um, you, the uh, processing of the fuel, including processing of the waste, is just an extremely small job relative to the amount of energy produced and, and so forth. Um, so, uh, you know, in the 60s, nuclear power just seemed to have all of the uh, uh, great, all these great things going for it that was going to make it the energy of the future. People pretty much just assumed this is, this is where things are going. And they were very optimistic about it. And what actually happened was, um, uh, and nuclear energy uh, in the U.S. at least was on an exponentially increasing path, like you know many new technologies. Um, if the growth rate of the you know 60s and maybe even early 70s had continued, uh, you know nuclear energy would be something around like 100% of electricity uh, today in 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 the worldwide. Um, instead, it leveled out in the you know early to mid 70s, and today provides only about 10% of worldwide electricity, 20% of the U.S. So you know we thought it had this tremendous potential to be the future. It ended up being you know 10 or 20% of the future. What went wrong? And it turns out, um, well, the the proximal cause for why nuclear uh, didn't didn't take over all of electricity generation um, in in the U.S. is that uh, it's expensive. It's expensive to uh, to construct a nuclear plant. It takes a lot of money and a lot of time. And so you not only have to uh, pay the money to, to build the plant, but you have to also have to finance it. And then that means you're paying financing costs. And in order to recoup all of those enormous upfront costs, you have to charge a higher amount for the electricity on a daily basis um, you know, as you go through the life of the plant. And so um, nuclear electricity is just not cost competitive with uh, coal or natural gas plants. Um, but isn't the same argue, argument can be done with wind energy? Uh, the fixed costs are pretty high, maybe not as high, but why is why does nuke, uh, wind energy have a chance more so than energy uh, than nuclear energy? What's going on? Um, I don't think the fixed costs are as high, actually, mm -hmm. in terms of building the upfront. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there is a similar um, pattern in that. Um, you, you know, your operating costs are relatively low relative to the construction costs, but, uh, you know, on a, on a per you know, megawatt of capacity basis, mm -hmm. um, a nuclear plant is more expensive to build than pretty much anything else. Um, 
I don't know how that changes. By the way, I mean, I haven't I haven't done a deep dive yet into um, uh, wind and solar and so forth. So I don't know how all of that changes once you account for um, the extra capacity factor that you have to add on top of intermittent sources. Um, and, and certainly, um, you know, usually the the numbers that you see are not taking into account. If this were to be like all of our energy, how much would we need in terms of battery storage? That gets extremely expensive. So typically when you're looking at these numbers, um, you have to be careful about what comparisons are being made. Oh, that's um, true. Yeah. And so, and also the other disadvantage that nuclear is facing compared to wind and solar is that with wind and solar, we subsidize it, but with nuclear, we in fact tax it. So there is the additional uh, regulatory burden that's placed on nuclear energy that is actually not only not placed on wind and solar, but those types of uh, fuel sources, so to speak, get subsidized. Yeah, I haven't looked into all of that, but I've, I've, I've heard that that's right. Um, so uh, when you look in, so to, to tie this all back together, right? When you look into, okay, well, why is it so expensive um, to build these? Uh, and, and, and when did it become really expensive? There's this actually fascinating historical pattern where, um, okay, most technologies start out expensive and then get cheaper as um, we get more experience with them. And as um, uh, there is, so there's this thing in economics known as the, the learning curve or the experience curve. You can actually, um, if you plot, um, you know, cost per you know, unit cost on, a, on the y-axis and not time, but total production volume on the x-axis. Um, and, and you do that on a log-log plot, you will see that there's uh, a straight line typically going down. So there's a power law where every doubling of capacity leads to a constant percentage decrease in uh, the per unit costs. Mm -hmm. um, and this, uh, this decrease is typically, I think, around 10 to 25% decrease in costs per doubling of capacity. Nuclear power was coming down the learning curve in the 60s, and it was coming down a fairly steep one in the US. I think it was around that 25% um, uh, slope. Right around 1970, this reverses. Uh, the learning curve actually inverts and costs start going up. Um, this is, we're getting negative learning, right? Or sometimes called forgetting by doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it's a really perverse and very strange um, pattern that you, you don't generally see. And so what happened around 1970, you know, give or take? Well, what happened was uh, a, a rapidly escalating and highly turbulent regulatory environment um, around nuclear. A lot of the new, um, you know, re regulations were getting written and rewritten um, and, uh, a bunch of uh, projects, uh, you know, plants that were getting built just ran into um, a lot of very long delays and, and cost overruns. Um, there was one plant, uh, I'm trying to remember the, the details of it, but in uh, New York that, you know, started off with an estimate of, um, I forget, around five to seven years and maybe, um, uh, you know, $500 million. And then, um, ended up getting canceled some 20 or 30 years later when it still hadn't been finished and the cost, the estimated cost had crept up to, you know, something like $5 billion. And that was the regulatory burden is responsible for the majority of these costs. It, I mean, obviously there are the fixed costs, which are nothing to ignore. Yeah, it's complicated. Yes. So the regulatory burden is a significant part of it. Um, another part of it is just political obstructionism. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, Another part of the of the regulations um, are things that enable um, 
citizen activists or basically anybody who opposes a project to hold it up in hearings yeah. uh, for a very long time. And so this particular uh, project, and I'm still blanking on the name of it, unfortunately, but it was in, um, we, we, if you have show notes, we can put it in the show notes later. Um, I'll look it up for you. But it was it was in the New York area and um, uh, it was held up in, in hearings for, you know, years. Um, and indeed, when they were uh, ready to open the plant, they couldn't open it for, I think, a matter of years because the city, the local city, refused to participate in planning exercises that the NRC said were required uh, until, and that, uh, you know, was further obstructionism until finally that requirement was simply waived. Um, so, you know, all of these things, yeah, led to um, increasing costs and, and, and longer timelines, and you get these cost and schedule overruns. If you look at a plot of, um, you know, cost per uh, unit capacity, uh, uh, versus the time that the project was started, it just, boom, in right around 1970, it just skyrockets and the costs go up by multiples. And after that, uh, pretty much no new nuclear plants were ordered since I think about 1974 for um, until almost maybe the end of the century mm -hmm. around then. There's been very few of them uh, uh, since. So it really just put a damper on this industry that was just really starting to emerge um, and, and get going. And uh, and standardize and lower its costs and, and so forth. Yeah, Adam Peer from the Mercatus Center uh, calls this regime mother may I innovation instead of permissionless innovation. So there was a shift in how we tolerate risk when it comes to technology from a common law regime where we let people innovate and if harm takes place, then there is the court system that adjudicates harm to a more administrative regulatory system where you have to go through all of these permissions first before you are able to innovate. And I think that is basically crippling the nuclear energy. Yeah, and um, I mean, look, let's be honest, nuclear uh, technology is, you know, has real hazards, risks, and dangers, right? We don't wanna um, uh, downplay that or deny it, it's very true. Uh, and uh, precautions absolutely have to be taken. Um, but it, you know, it is possible to, uh, it's, it's certainly possible to not uh, look at trade-offs, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's ultimately what has happened with nuclear regulation is that um, all the incentives really are on one side. So, I mean, you know, if you think about the, the, the challenge with, uh, uh, with regulatory agencies very often is that, is that their incentives are one-sided. Mm -hmm. If anything goes wrong, they're gonna be blamed for it. Um, if anything goes right, they generally won't get the credit. Um, and if if what could go right is prevented from happening at all, they also, that's invisible. So they also don't get blamed for mm -hmm. it, right? So all of the incentives are sort of pushing in one uh, direction. And when there's nothing to counterbalance that, then you just you just end up, uh, you know, going very far away from uh, uh, from a proper trade-off, and you end up in the side of, of you know, over-caution, sometimes by orders of magnitude. So do you see room for maybe a middle ground between administrative state regulation and common law regulation, so to speak? Do you see a middle ground there? Um, I agree with you that there are certain technologies where they have they they're the um, they have the tail risks. The percentage of uh, something bad happening is very 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 small, 
but the face value of the harm if it were to materialize is extremely high and i think it's these technologies what that we're having trouble figuring out how do we deal with those are we comfortable leaving them to the common law but if the harm materializes it's enormous but if we go with the administrative state then we might never let uh, give them a chance to even discover what the probabilities may be what the face values may be yeah it's a really tough question it's one i've been thinking about and unfortunately i don't have an answer um but it's one that i think deserves a lot more thought right so um i think that you don't want to um simply leave it up to kind of um yeah prosecuting disasters after the fact mm -hmm. right for, for a lot of reasons first off it means disasters happen <laughs> um second off when you do have these tail risks it's not even clear that a um uh you know even if you okay to take a concrete example right suppose you had um an unsafe nuclear plant like the one at chernobyl and um uh, the disaster happens. Okay, now you say, fine, under common law, we're going to hold this uh, power company liable for all the damage they caused. Mm -hmm. They they might immediately be bankrupt, right? They might not even have uh, you know what it takes to um, to to pay for that liability. Um, one mechanism you can use there is insurance. Mm -hmm. um, so insurance is a way to bring in some of the power of private markets uh, on. Uh, uh, so this has worked uh, pretty well in, uh, I'll just give an analogy to another domain rather than, I don't have a, a policy proposal for how to fix nuclear yet, but let me give an analogy to another domain and I won't claim it's a perfect analogy, but maybe we can learn something from it. Um, and that's the domain of factory safety. Um, so uh, before, uh, you know, around the turn of the last century, um, there were a lot of problems in sort of new industrial factories with just, um, uh, there were a lot of worker injuries, right? Uh, you, I mean, you had this emerging, you know, new form of the economy, which is this industrial economy. You had these large factories. Um, you have uh, large and powerful machines being run by new energy sources. Um, and and the, the whole world is in transition from this uh, craft mode of production where you have artisans in a shop and the artisan was generally considered to be responsible for their own safety and a, and a responsible professional who could take care of their own safety. And now you're moving into this uh, very different mode of production with uh, you know, hundreds or thousands of workers in a large factory. They're not all master craftsmen necessarily. Um, uh, and so uh, you have oh, all this new potential for accidents. And then um, something actually uh, changed in the liability law, first in Europe in the late 1800s, and then in the US in the early 1900s, um, we adopted a workers' compensation model of liability. And it, this, the key thing about this was that it was a no-fault model. Mm -hmm. um, so rather than having to have a tort lawsuit uh, where a, an injured worker or the family of a deceased worker would uh, sue the company and say, this was your fault, and then they'd have to argue over whose fault it was. and um, companies actually had a lot of ways they could get out of liability. Um, rather than all of that, the new law, the new liability law said, no, look, we're not going to do these court cases and so forth. Um, if there's an accident in the factory, the factory is liable. No fault system. We're not going to, you know, just say the factory is always liable. 
Um, and further, we'll say that they are liable on a particular schedule. So we're going to say we're going to state in advance. Here are the a, a death means this many dollars paid to the family, right? Uh, if the worker goes blind, they get this many dollars, and you know, and so forth. So there was a, a table of of these things, and um, and so you might have a um, you know a board that would review these things to uh, sort of determine the penalties according to the schedule. But you didn't have these lawsuits, and you didn't have these fights over who was liable. Um, what this did was it turned companies from uh, a, a mode of where they were trying to avoid liability to a mode in which they were trying to prevent accidents, mm -hmm. uh, which was exactly kind of the mentality shift that was needed. And then they went ahead and they um, they started to create safety engineering departments and started to uh, analyze the root causes of accidents and collect statistics and... Um, uh, uh, and they started to put guards on the machinery and, uh, you know, do more regular maintenance and more training for the workers and protective equipment and so forth. And accident rates, you know, came way down. So this was a success. But one thing uh, uh, that, that happened in all of this was that um, companies would get liability insurance. And uh, now the insurance companies had a particular incentive to help uh, sort of understand um, the, where the causes of accidents and insurance companies would even do their own research on factory safety and, you know, publish things and um, uh, factories could get a discount on their insurance premiums if they followed certain best practices, right? Um, so you can imagine, again, I don't perfectly know how well it would work, but you can imagine a similar regime for, um, for, for nuclear, right? Where any nuclear plant or operator would uh, be required to have some sort of insurance, uh, where there's some understanding of what kinds of liability would happen in certain uh, you know, kinds of events. And then you have, um, you know, rather than uh, uh, you know, having a situation where the nuclear plant might just simply go bankrupt if there was a, a major disaster. They've got the insurance behind them, so you know they're they're not going to go bankrupt. The liability will be paid out. But more importantly, um, hopefully you were in a world where an uh, an unreliable, irresponsible nuclear operator simply could not afford the insurance because the insurance company presumably would want to come in and do their own inspections and have their own you know standard and so forth. When you have it in that regime, you have the um, you have the financial incentives in both directions, which are going to be better able to balance each other and get you the right trade off, right? So rather than the regulator with a one sided set of incentives, you now have um, you know you, you have the incentives to kind of set the uh, uh, the the levels of um, precautions required and the number of redundant backup systems and you know so on and so forth. You you have an incentive to set all of that at at the you know the, the sort of proper economical level. It's one mechanism that might work, um, and I think we need a lot more thinking about types of mechanisms like mm -hmm. that and which would help us get the right trade-offs. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's uh, fascinating. I, I think there's a lot of potential to this um, no-fault regime. And I, I mean, the, the name no-fault makes it sound that the factory would be at no fault, but in fact, it's the exact opposite. Yeah. It's a strict liability regime. Yes. But with certain, um, you know, you put money towards a pool and that pool will automatically go to um, to pay off uh, claims. But the idea is that there would be none of this adjudication of how much negligence and try to avoid liabilities, etc. I think there is uh, there are I mean, in this however many minutes we're, we're talking, I think there is a way to regulate nuclear energy that is far superior than what we've got right now. Yeah, I mean, but let me just say, even apart from this, um, I mean, I think other regulatory agencies do an, a, a, a better job mm -hmm. of um, 
I mean, this this this, this model. Yeah, this this model where um, you you don't even have a threshold, right? You're not even looking at uh, you're not even really looking at effects on health and saying, look, the health is our ultimate goal uh, and, 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 and safeguarding health um, and literally just saying, we're going to drive the radiation down as low as possible, you know, past all thresholds. I mean, I think that's where you've gotten somewhat detached from reality, right? The FDA, and I might have a lot of criticisms of, of, of you know, the modern FDA, but at least when they're running, you know, clinical trials, they're looking for reasonable things like safety and efficacy, right? Those are, you know, somebody would want to do those clinical trials anyway, right? Um, so, um, you know, I, I think you could do better than the NRC, even without having to, you know, fundamentally, um, you transform the way it works, but I think you would have to, uh, I think we do need a fundamental rejection of this Alara, and I think we need to replace it with, um, you know, reasonable thresholds that are based on actual, uh, an actual notion of, um, of what is harmful to human health. Yeah, I mean, and once you start pushing down the exposure to below natural exposure, something terribly wrong has gone, right? Uh, th th this is beyond common sense. Uh, I think so, given the data that I've seen, yeah. So given the data that you've seen, um, nuclear energy gives the best bang for the buck, even with the safety uh, considerations and impact on the environment? Yeah, my understanding is that... Um, with a uh, with a more reasonable regulatory environment, um, nuclear could be built cheap enough to be uh, to be our cheapest form of electricity, right? To be cost competitive with uh, with all the other, certainly to be uh, you know cheaper than uh, than fossil fuels. Um, and I think it's got uh, tremendous advantages. Um, and so uh, you know I think it ought to be at least a significant you know part of our energy solution. And what about its environmental impact? Uh, there's no air pollution. <laughs> there's um, uh, there's no carbon even, right? There's there's no air. There's no atmospheric emissions at all. Um, you have nuclear waste to deal with, um, and nuclear waste is an actual problem. Um, but the great thing about nuclear power again is this insane energy density that's orders of magnitude beyond any other fuel. Um, and what it means is that you just you, you know you simply don't generate a lot of waste. So we could spend. We could spend a lot of money per kilogram of waste. Um, the uh, you know the amount of uh, waste that uh, an individual American would you you know would would generate over their entire lifetime if all of their you know energy usage came from nuclear power. I mean, it's about this much, right? You could fit it. You know, you you could hold it in your hand. Um, that, that's over you know your entire what eighty you know some year lifetime. So. Um, it's just a very tiny problem, and um, it's it's solvable, you know, with with technology. So, environmental activists should be uh, the best advocates for a switch from LNT. It seems to me, because if we we don't want fossil fuels because of its impact on the environment, then it seems to me that nuclear offers the best current alternative, and by best, I mean accounting for the cost. There are costs to every technology. So accounting for the cost, nuclear seems to be the best option going forward. So from an environmental activism point of view, they should be very critical of LNT because that would be the way to overcome this proportionality rule, this better be safe than sorry mentality so we can open up the world for 
a nuclear future. Yeah, and I don't know about LNT specifically, but there are definitely um, uh, people who would consider themselves environmentalists who are strongly pro-nuclear as mm -hmm. an important path forward. Um, the folks at the Breakthrough Institute, uh, who I think coined the term eco-modernism, uh, are have uh, have done actually a lot of really good research on nuclear power. They've got some uh, interesting reports that I recommend checking out. One was called How to Make Nuclear Cheap, and another was called How to Make Nuclear Innovative. They've written a bunch about it over the years. Um, Stuart Brand, uh, in his uh, re relatively recent book, Whole Earth Discipline, uh, holds up nuclear power as one of the key you know, uh, technologies uh, for the future. Um, and he, I think Brand also you know, considers himself uh, an environmentalist. Um, uh, Brand says that there is kind of a, uh, a split between the scientific and the romantic wings of the environmentalist movement, right? That the folks who are looking at the science um, are actually for some things that seem counterintuitive to some of the environmentalist mentality. In his book, uh, Nuclear Power is one of them. Uh, dense urban living in cities is another one. Um, and uh, I, I don't remember the, you know, some of the other things that he mentions, but, um, you know, versus the... Um, the, the romantic environmentalists who are going a little bit more on a feeling or on sort of older ideas um, and are and have this knee-jerk yeah reaction against nuclear and, and, and other technologies. We will link to all of these books and articles that uh, Jason is talking about. And also, I would love to link to your bicycle article that became a hit and the talk that you gave on last uh, year, was it, at the Salem Center yeah, where November. you unpacked the mystery of nuclear energy because i think this is very important you talk about the incentives for the nuclear agencies that if they do it wrong they get blamed if they do it right they never get rewarded but i think that incentive structure we set up that incentive structure and the fact that we don't have as much education in what this technology what this magic is contributes to us putting pressures on the regulators to go for this, well, better be safe than sorry. Better be safe than sorry in the eyes of whom? In the eyes of all of the taxpayers that are holding you accountable for if you get it wrong, but never giving you an upside. It's like a kicker in a, in a football game. And uh, we will link to that as well, where Jason unpacks the mysteries of nuclear energy. And with that, do you have any last words you would like to tell us? Um, yeah, uh, I do think it is important more broadly for people to understand not just nuclear energy, but in general, all of the technologies that make up the modern world and give us our standard of living. Um, I've, I've called this industrial literacy. I think, um, you know, just as uh, people sometimes say that you should know where your food comes from. Uh, you know, I think you should really know where your food comes from, and that includes understanding why it's important that we have mechanized agriculture and synthetic fertilizers and irrigation and all the other things that we have. You should also know where your clothes come from, where your paved roads come from, where your, uh, you know, central heating and air conditioning comes from. You should have some basic understanding of the technologies that underpin the amazing world that we live in and the comfort and safety and health uh, and, and freedoms and, and choices and opportunities that we all enjoy, you know, living in modern industrial civilization. I think, um, you know, too many people enjoy all of the fruits of, of industrial civilization and um, have no idea what really makes it possible. And then we all go out and debate industrial policy and vote for politicians who are going to be in control of industrial policy and, uh, you know, without 
um, a, a very basic understanding of of what that actually is and uh, and how it works. So I think everybody should learn a little bit more um, about uh, yeah, just just what makes the modern world possible. Thank you very much, Jason. This talk was made possible by the science of technological progress. Thanks, Jason. Thank you.